certainly been a privilege for us to be able to, in the goodness of God, to spend time with you all. Perhaps as never before in this fashion. And uh, it has been good every time we left this place. We left uh, saddened and joyful at the same time. Joyful for the blessing and saddened because we were uh, able to see your faces for a few days. But uh, the Lord has really given us a uh, a rich time in St. Louis with a dear church over there supporting us for so long and uh, uh, again we left there saddened and joyful <laughs> and um, and of course we are happy to see each and every one and uh, and this will be the last time we'll see you for a uh, for some time, and we'll go back to Italy tomorrow, as far as I'm concerned. Shiri will be visiting a, uh, a dear friend, an elderly lady in Wisconsin who is struggling with health and needs uh, immediate attention. And uh, so uh, we'll be in prayer for my wife as she travels and goes north. north and uh, and she'll, she'll be able to spend the Christmas time with her family which I'm grateful for, and then, then you know, come back in the, towards the beginning of January to Italy. The church is doing well. Uh, we talk to the people all the time, and uh, we are especially grateful for the faithfulness of God to us through the years, uh, and also to our, uh, the people there and the ministry. We'll be praying for you. We know this is not a, the easiest time, and it's a rather difficult time for you, but the Lord will encourage you. You will be faithful to His flock. And uh, indeed, uh, we we chose this theme uh, this morning. Uh, Someone said, you know, that uh, the faithfulness of a man is not to be seen in the knowledge that he has of uh, past conflicts. And, uh, but of the present ones. <laughs> we may know all about the Reformation and even the ancient church and the struggles and the battles that had to be fought at that time and some of which continue today. Uh, but we live in this current time, in this generation, and we must be faithful to the needs and the situations and the issues that are facing the church today. The knowledge of the past is not of much use if we don't use it for what's going on today. So we love history, but not for history's sake, because it helps us to understand the present. Um, now, we, we are living in, uh, in very difficult times. As we have been considering for the last few weeks, we're living in the... Uh, uh, in, towards the end of what they would call the modern project this uh, civilization that has uh, been conceived ideologically in the 1600s beginning with the half of the second half of the 1600s the 1700s socially implemented in the 1800s and then uh, historically <coughs> imploded historically imploded 
in, uh, in the 1900s. So we're living at the end. It's been a long agony, as we saw, a long agony. But finally, people have begun to use the term postmodern, <laughs> which is in itself an admission of a failure. The modern project has gone bankrupt. Uh, what this new postmodern project looks like may be the last of the civilizations. <laughs> we know from the scripture, as far as I understand, even though eschatology we know it's a difficult subject, and not all the brethren will agree on, on every detail, but as far as I can see, it looks to me like when God will lift up that restraint and men will be able to reach that one world government that may very well be the last civilization of man's history. And, um, but there are so many issues that are confronting the church today and we know that the church is not to withdraw from the battle. Um, when we speak of battle, we speak of the gospel battle, evangelical terms. We're not to use rifles to kill people, even though we may protect ourselves in our homes. But uh, we're speaking of that gospel battle, the battle for God's truth, for the glory of God, for the real good of humanity. Um, one of the big current issues today, of course, is homosexuality, which has become uh, rampant in our society. And what does the church have to say concerning this? We, we posted uh, this theme on the Facebook page of the church because this is meant, of course, for our edification so that we may understand this theme and be able to help ourselves, perhaps help our children, or perhaps help somebody else that is, uh, has this uh, issue, whether their own life or families or friends or we must know what it is we must know what to say we must know how to help through the gospel if the lord was able to take the issue of paying taxes to the roman government and turn it back to a gospel issue of giving to god what is god we can take any issue especially the most important issues of the day and guide them back to the root problem the root issue which is always man's relationship with God in gospel terms. And uh, now this theme can be faced in all sorts of ways, uh, socially, uh, culturally, psychologically, medically, um, politically, ideologically. <laughs> uh, and we see this everywhere. But... The church's message cannot be really any of these. The church message is a biblical message, and the Bible is uh, a unique way to face any issue, which ultimately should not be confounded with any conservatism that may be out there. Uh, I'm not making light of the political scene and what is going on. We've been talking about it for the last month in many ways. But I'm saying that... To be a Republican conservative does not mean necessarily to be a Christian that has a biblical worldview of things. And if that distinction is blurred, the, the church is losing its direction. The Bible is a unique message that does not correspond to any political ideology at all. Uh, 
It starts from different premises and ultimately ends to different conclusions. So that <coughs> ought to be very clear. Um, but um, the, the view of the Bible is different because of the way it, it addresses any subject, it is to its origin and meaning and um, consequences and also remedies. Uh, it's completely unique. And, uh, and not only is unique, but it's indispensable. Indispensable. If we really want to understand anything about life and living, anything at all, we need to have the scriptures with us and the mind of God shedding light on any issue. I'm convinced we cannot even understand the alphabet if we don't begin with the Bible. And um, that's why we entitled our this, this message on Facebook as we posted it, The Light of the Bible on a Difficult and... Uh, uh, on this on this difficult issue, um, and so we will open to the scriptures. Uh, and uh, again, there are different ways to approach. I I have learned through the years to love so much the early chapters of Genesis that uh, uh, I usually begin from there when I face any subject at all, and I want to do it thematically. Because Genesis 1 through 3 uh, are the, the origin of all things. The, 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 the first building blocks of anything are there. But today we will do something different. We'll actually begin with an historical situation. And then we'll move back to Genesis and go to the origin of the issues. And so we will turn to the book of Leviticus. And uh, chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18. It would be good to have uh, somewhat of an historical perspective here. But Israel has left Egypt. Uh, the Exodus left the house of bondage, led by the Lord God through the desert. Uh, now, at this very moment, Israel is at uh, Mount Sinai, you know, receiving God's word. God's view of things. Uh, also God's moral commandments. And uh, a very important passage. We, don't, we will not take time this morning to see it. But it will be like uh, Exodus chapter 20. Of course the Ten Commandments. Which gave the broad perspective on the moral requirements of God. And then uh, uh, Exodus 24 when a covenant was made and accepted by Israel and ratified with the blood of sacrifice. And the Jews said, we will do all that the Lord God has spoken and we will obey him. Now on the basis of that covenant, then God continued to give instructions. And part of the moral instructions of God given to Israel at the time are here in this 18th chapter of Leviticus. And we will read from verse 1 to verse 23. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God, according to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan where I am bringing you, you shall not do. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord, your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if any man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. Let us just pause for a second. We heard God reminded Israel of the covenant. I am the Lord, your God. You have entered into a covenant with me. I am your God. You recognize me as such. On the basis of that covenant, these are my moral commandments. And <clears throat> uh, a very important word to understand is that uncover his nakedness. That's a euphemism for sexual intercourse. So as we read on, let us understand that that's what that expression means. So let me read again verse a, uh, 6. None of you shall approach any one of you who is near of kin to him, blood-related, to uncover his nakedness, to, to have sexual intercourse. I am the Lord. The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife, like a stepmother situation, you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness because they're one flesh. The nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter, your daughter's daughter, their nakedness you shall not uncover. For theirs is your own nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, begotten by your father, she is your sister. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is near of kin to your father. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she, she is near of kin to your mother. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. You shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter, nor shall you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are near of kin to her. It is wickedness. Nor shall you take a woman as a rival to her sister to uncover her nakedness while the other is alive. Also, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she is in her customary impurity. 
during her period. Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. That's adultery. You shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Moloch, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. You shall, uh, nor shall you mate with an animal to defy yourself with it. Nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion. Indeed, it is a strange passage to preach from. <laughs> but we must preach the whole Bible. And uh, so we are beginning with this historical setting. Israel had left Egypt. It was actually in Sinai. In a little bit, they will be leaving to head towards the promised land. Uh, in Canaanite land. In Canaanite culture. And God warns them. Follow my commandments, not their habits. Uh, there's a few things that we, of course, need to say in uh, generic terms to understand somewhat this passage. Uh, so, we could say that uh, the basic issue here that God speaks about is... Uh, this is forbidding, prohibiting uh, sexual relationship with people that are blood-related or that are blood-related to our next of kin. Uh, in verse... Uh, we can see that in verse 6. That's the broad category... But as we read on, we can see also this is a text in which God forbids adultery. Any woman who is not your wife. And then also, verse, that's verse 20. And then verse 22, homosexuality. And verse uh, 23, bestiality. Bestiality. Uh, another observation we need to make. Notice that the commandments... Uh, though applicable to both men and women, because the Hebrew expression in verse 6, none of you, ish, ish in Hebrew, it means each and every one, uh, in, uh, irrespectively whether they are male or female. So none of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. So all of these commandments pertain to all human beings, whether male or females. Um, uh, however, uh, the vast majority are prohibitions that are given to men, to men, uh, concerning their inappropriate uh, in a relationship with mother, stepmother, sister, stepsister, and other you know relationship that concern women. And uh, of course, we need to ask ourselves why. Why are the vast majority of these commandments given to men? Uh, well, for the very obvious reason that there seems to be in men uh, 
uh, a stronger sexual drive that uh, can easily become aggressive and violent. Uh, this was true then, as it is true now. Uh, the latest, you know, st 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 statistics will say, um, 2019, uh, you know, taken from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center, one out of 71 men will be raped within their lifetime, which is about 1.3%. Concerning women, is one out of five in America. One out of 71 boys, one out of five women or girls. That's 20%. 91% of all victims of sexual abuse are women, 90% done by men. And 9% are men or boys. So this tells us that there's an issue here. Uh, in, in some, we were built by God, men were built by God with a stronger sexual drive. I think that's part of our headship, if I can put it that way. <laughs> it's part of that responsibility. Uh, but that can be and is distorted, abused, used as an instrument to obtain illicit pleasure and satisfaction where it should not be gotten. So this is true now as it was true then. Uh, so by reasoning even just generically over this passage, we can see that the situation here was a of these families that broadly speaking were like clan families. They lived in a tribal situation with tents near one another. And it, was, it would be very easy, because they lived in close proximity one to another, that men would abuse of women. Uh, and so this, all of these prohibitions really are also to be understood as prohibitions that want to protect women from men. Uh, notice also that many of the cases here described uh, uh, concern women that are unmarried. Some that are married, some that are unmarried. And those that are married were particularly vulnerable at the time. So God is very stringent on this. He's very, very clear. He speaks of perversion. He speaks of uh, something that is abominable to him, that that should ever happen. And if you want to know how clear and stringent God was, you can only but read Deuteronomy verse chapter 22, verses 25 and 27, where the death penalty is issued against uh, these sort of things. I'm talking about rape. The raping of a woman was sanctioned by death penalty in the scriptures. And uh, so, now you know, uh, oftentimes this Bible is spoken of as being more for the masculine than the feminine, pro-men and not pro-woman. 
And I think that is a debate that does not belong to the Bible. The Bible never puts sexes opposed to each other by principle or by ideology. It never does that. Uh, The sexual genders are complementary according to scriptures. Uh, But there are dozens and dozens of passages in scriptures that speak very differently. Uh, God was always sensitive to the plight of the vulnerable and the weak in, in, in in our society. And so he does here. And he tells men, you can't do that. You can't do that. And, uh, but now, of course, <laughs> if, we, if we think through this, there's so much more in this chapter. Uh, what other principles can we draw from this chapter? So let me begin, I will make a series of statements here, which will begin from the broad to the more specific. So, uh, the first premise, sexuality, is an integral part of human nature. Uh, An integral part of what it means to be a man, and an integral part of what it means to be a woman. That's biblical. Early chapters of Genesis will clarify that. Uh, This is so because God has created human beings that way. Men and women. Uh, So sexuality is not bad per se. Actually, uh, sexuality is is good. Um, Not only is not bad, but sexuality is good. It's a gift from God. Uh, There are two sexual genders, male and female, uh, which are complementary, created to be so. Sexuality is necessary for procreation, for the continuance of the human race. Uh, It also, not only necessary, but it's pleasurable. God has uh, united to sexuality pleasure. But it's also binding in the sense that it is, um, it is an aspect of life that is supposed to bind two people together. Uh, so it, it is to be built of that binding <coughs> of marriage. <laughs> but it does itself contribute to the making of that one flesh. So that makes it something very special, unique. Um, However, sexuality, as we can see here, can be abused, distorted, transformed into an instrument that will not lead to life, but to actual death. Uh, So, because with the privilege and the pleasure, God unites responsibility, then we have these limits that are posed here. There are limits. So, according to the scriptures, uh, sexuality is not to be used freely with whomever, whenever, however you wish. The Bible is not for the kind of promiscuity. Uh, the question is, of course, how are we to orient our 
sexual behavior? According to what principles? Well, let us consider just uh, three points very quickly, however. Uh, first of all, look at the how this chapter is prefaced. Uh, verse 3. According to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you, you shall not do. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. Now, God is speaking of these very things. That's the context. And He will say later on, if you would, uh, verse 24, 25, Do not defile yourself with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land, the land of Canaan, of course, is defiled. Therefore, I visit the punishment of of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. Uh, and the the basic principle we can you know derive from that is that our sexual behavior is not to be determined according to cultural customs. It doesn't matter whether it's a place you came from or a place you're going to. Whether it is Egypt, where you used to live as slaves, or to, to Canaan, where you're going to. That doesn't make any difference. Their customs may be what they may be. Actually, their customs are very bad, very evil, very wicked. You're not to imitate those. So, again, this is the uniqueness of the Bible. The uniqueness of the Bible is this, that the moral standards of the Bible are not to be understood in terms of culture of culture sometimes cultural standards may uh, be um, may be in harmony somewhat in harmony with some scriptural standards which however remain unique because of what they are they are a god-given word uh, so what we hear here is that the the moral principles standards that god's people are to to follow, they are not to change through the centuries or to the millenniums or to the changing of culture or the ideologies that dominate our cultures. They are to be founded on something else. Something else. So it is the prescribed responsibility of the church to examine itself all the time. Am I bending towards? Am I compromising with? Am I accepting uh, principles, criteria, you know, parameters, uh, that are not in tune with the Word of God. And as you know, <coughs> it is so easy to be influenced by our surrounding uh, context that we always need to check ourselves and see whether individually, as a family, as a church, or as churches, we are being influenced, wrongly influenced by our society. So, this is one of the great services that the Bible gives us. It allows us to check ourselves all the time and return to the fountain, return to the ideal that God gave us at the very beginning. So, God's moral standards do not change. They do not vary. However, there's something more to be said. As you can see here, there are all sorts of sexual problems 
misbehaviors. <laughs> it does speak of homosexuality, but it speaks also of bestiality. And it also speaks of all sorts of different, um, we can say, incest cases. Whether mother, stepmother, sister, stepsister, and all sorts of situations. So, uh, with homosexuality, as with anything else, it can only be understood if you put it in, in its own context, in the broad context. Uh, and God puts it in this context. And the context has to do with all sorts of uh, you know, sexual misbehaviors or wrong orientations or, or actually violence and crime and wickedness uh, that do respond, however, to human desire. Um, these things were being practiced in Egypt. These things were being practiced in the land of Canaan. There were cases, as there are cases today. And if, if you have studied the matter, you know that incest in America is rampant as well. I think it's one out of five families or four families that uh, incestual cases take place in America. Why would a, uh, uh, a son go after his mother? We are all adults this morning. We can talk about this. Why would a daughter go after his father, her, her, her father? Because he desires so. Because she desires so. Does that make it right? Why would a man want to be sexually united with a beast? Because he desires so. Why would a woman do that? Because she desires so. Does that make it right? So all through the scripture here, we have all sorts of different cases they are described by God and forbidden by God, but they do respond to what man desires. And what the scriptures say in that the criteria to know what you can do or cannot do sexually cannot be defined in terms of what you want. Or your impetus, or your impulses, or your desires. Uh, that cannot be the ultimate, the, the ultimate criteria. Because just because you feel something or you want something or you have a certain orientation, sexual orientation, does not make it right. Because if you say that's the criteria, then there's no more limit. There's no more limit. That's why the Bible puts it in this context. It's a broad subject that has to do with all sorts of sexual disorientations that are to be understood for what they are. Uh, disorientations. It's a wrong use of the sexual desire that God gave us. And should not be approved, should not be accepted. So, uh, the sexual, the you know, parameters, the criteria, the principles that should drive, that should you know, direct our sexual uh, you know, behavior should not be based on what our culture says, or any culture says. doesn't matter when and where, geographically or through history. And should not be determined on the basis of just our own orientation. <coughs> the Bible does not approve of this dictatorship of self, 
what the self dictates, that's what you want. That's what you, you, you get. Nor would the Bible approve anything such as, if it feels good, it's right. That, that's, not, that's not approvable. Because people will do all of those things, which the Bible would call perversions, because they felt good to them. There is the gift of pleasure in sexuality, but it becomes hedonism. It becomes destructive hedonism when it is pursued for pleasure's sake, apart from moral considerations. That's not approvable. Now, one thing we must remember, too, is that God places these prohibitions and these parameters for our good. Paul says in Romans 13, the law was given for love's sake, (laughs) to demonstrate love to one another, and first of all, love to our Creator. In fact, in chapter 18, Paul um, God says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord God. Now that statement, he shall live by them, has multiple meanings, as Paul shows us in Galatians chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4. But it does also imply that statement, he shall live by them, that God's commandments lead to life. They lead to life. They are for our good. That That's when he says, honor your parents, because that will add to the length of your days, they are meant for our good. So we should never understand these prohibitions as uh, as evil or, or wicked or restrictive in a negative sense. But they're actually you know, limits to protect our life, our very personal well-being, and the well-being of our neighbor. Because we need to understand that we are sinners. And we need these parameters. We need these limits. These limits. Now, of course, placing matters in such a light, the Bible goes squarely against the prevalent ideology that dominates our culture today. Whether in America or in Europe and elsewhere. Where actually, this is all about relativism and subjectivism. Everything is relative. Everything is subjective. It just depends what you want. We all have different sexual orientations. Everybody's free to do what they want. Because the ideology responds to the criteria of the dictatorship of self, the Bible is squarely against that. That's not the way it should be. If you pursue that, you will destroy yourself and you will destroy others along the way. And we already talked about this in the you know, uh, preceding weeks. Uh, now, uh, another issue comes out of the text. If people have, if human beings have these drives, these impulses that are wrong, are wrong, where do they come from? And why are they there? Are they born with them? Or is something that grows, has grown in, into them by through or from external influences? Uh, and of course, this is a broad 
subject. We cannot uh, enter into that a lot. But let me begin with the external. Just very, very quickly, I would say uh, that there are external influences that can pervert our sexual orientations. Um, By nature, we are created by God with an orientation towards the opposite sex. By nature, Romans chapter 1. But things can intervene in life to divert, to deviate that orientation. Uh, I will mention three things. First of all, the greatest influence, your parents. Your parents. The Bible so much stresses the complementary nature of a, a husband and wife. The role modeling of these two what is to be a woman, her femininity. What is to be a man, his masculinity. The Bible stresses these two elements. Also because they are fundamental to what we project to our children. Age one through five. And always. But these early ages are so important. A little boy needs to grow up with a, a father figure that is a a model of what a man should be. Not an absolute model, because we're all made different. (laughs) And the son will be different from his father. But, basically, what a a, a manly character is to be. In the same way with the girls in relation to the mother. Because if these things are not clear, that character is, is not there, it's not clear. Or the father is more feminine, and or the, the, the mother weather pants, she's the dominating figure, then that can upset a lot of things. But also it can upset 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 the sexual orientation of the children. <coughs> uh, so if a mother is too masculine, that can have a negative impact both on the girls and the boys. If the father is too, is too feminine, is not strong, is not responsible, it does not project what a man should be as, as, a, as a model of character, then that can have an effect, a distorting effect um, of what it means to be a man. And can wrongly affect both these girls and boys if he has them. Uh, Again, speaking of parents, I have seen fathers being so stern with their boys, especially, or their girls, but especially the boys, expecting so much out of them, but with little love. And I've seen different cases of young boys that have turned homosexual because they were, allow me the word, castrated, as boys, not allowed to develop with a sense of manhood and, you know, respect as they were growing up and involvement in, you know, in decision making and in work and in responsibility and in leadership. They didn't grow up because their, their father didn't take them by the hand and led them through life. They didn't have that kind of relationship. 
And so, a lot of boys have been ruined by that. Um, Now, you know, before I I go on, uh, it would be wonderful to go to the book of Proverbs (laughs) and read so many passages there where the father interacts with his children about sexuality. Father and mother, as we understand the commandments are given by both, instructions are given by both. What does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things, but it means we should have that interactive relationship with our children. They should feel that we are their best friends. They can open up to us because we understand we've gone through the same things. They can talk to us. So where there's no dialogue, no possibility for a child to express the problems and the issues he has inside, if he, if he has any issues of sexual disorientation, he's going to keep it inside, you see. Because if these things come up in an early age, that can be helped. <laughs> that can be helped with dialogue and, and prayer and conversation and light and the Word of God and the Spirit of God. So, now you know, a young child, even a growing boy, is not going to come up Come out and tell you, I'm struggling with this. Oh, he's not going to do that. You have to take initiative as a father with your boys and as a mother with the girls to initiate conversations that go deep in the heart without becoming red on your face because this is reality. This is reality. And it can attack every one of us, any one of our families. Even so more today, the world has so many different arrows through which it can hit us. Uh, but, you know, secondly, I would think of uh, early sexual experimentations of children. We need to watch out for that because that sort of experimentation, which a lot of times comes out of curiosity, but curiosity can lead to to things that will have a negative impact. Because if out of curiosity a boy engages in sexual activities with other boys and girls with the same, then can have an impact. Thirdly, of course, traumatic experiences. Uh, that can... That can violently disorient a person sexually, create a lot of confusion in the mind as to say, well, who am I? Wait a minute. Why did he do that to me? Who am I? And you know, sin is powerful. Sin is powerful. And anyone that even at at a pastoral level or a filial level has dealt with these things must know something like this. These sort of things. So I really don't like this simplistic, some of the simplistic statements I read on Facebook as people, you know, answered and commented, oh, these are all devils, you know. <laughs> that, that's really not the way to approach the issue. Then, of course, people are responsible for what they do and how they answer. Uh, but now... Uh, let us let us go deeper towards the end of our message in Genesis chapter 1 because 
our basic natural sexual orientation, which is for the opposite sex, can also be disoriented, perverted, deviated by inward sin. Inward sin. We not be born per se with the orientation towards homosexuality, but given certain circumstances and the randomly way in which sin by itself seeks out forms of pleasure, illicit pleasures, then in time that orient the disorientation, the deviation uh, can become a real inner issue that overtakes the person. So there is a sense in which we are born with the potentiality <laughs> to be so deviated. The sin will deviate us. No question about that. In all sorts of areas. And sexuality is one of the, perhaps the strongest area in which sin more widely operates. In all sorts of ways. Sin is the, sin is the ability through sexual you know, desire to grab you and destroy you. Destroy you. Literally. We've seen men and women end up that way. And I'm sure you have to. So the Bible says, watch out. Watch out. It's a great privilege, but you need to live it according to God's standards. Or you will destroy yourself and others along the way. So, uh, it would be wonderful to go to uh, Psalm 51. You know, that's a... one of the places to go, because we have there a situation of adultery. Clearly, David was led, uh, driven by this sexual desire, which was illicit, was illegitimate. Uh, he committed adultery, but when he confesses his sin to God, he goes back to the very root of the problem. I was born in iniquity. My mother conceived me in sin. Oh God. Ultimately, that's why I did what I did. And that's why I killed whom I killed. And I violated whom I violated. The root issue, the root problem is there. There's a responsibility, of course. David was responsible. But he's pointing out the uh, the, the sad condition of this malady that we have. That every one of us has. The works inside. Or oh, let me remind you of. Matthew chapter 15, out of the heart comes sexual lusts. That's Jesus' word. And out of the heart, out of there. In fact, sometimes all sorts of different strange thoughts can come to the mind, even though you don't seek for it, you don't look for it. It just pop up. Even perhaps towards another sex. How can that happen? How can that happen? I'm a straight man. What what would that thing into my mind? Well, it can happen. It can happen. And it can happen also especially during the teenage years. What a mess of a time that can be. What a mess of a time that can be. When uh, we can do some foolish things as we're driven by all these hormones inside and we don't know how to handle it. That's also an age where parent must take initiative and be able to establish a conversation that is open and and helpful and loving and truthful. Um, but 
Let's go to the very, very root of the problem. And here is where especially the Bible, along with redemption, the analysis of the origin of the problem is so unique, amazingly unique. So uh, Genesis, I'm speaking, of course, of Genesis 1, and uh, the book of the beginnings, of course, the beginnings of the humankind, and as soon as God speaks of creating man, he does so in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creepeth, I mean, that creeps on the earth. See, that's man's lordship over the earth, uh, under lordship. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, this, <laughs> these two verses encompass so much matter. They will take the whole Bible and all eternity to, to study it. Um, let us let us. Spend just a few minutes here, but try to get to some of the main uh, things that are, uh, you know, taught. I would especially uh, look at 27, which gives us a, like a summary, a very short, brief summary of how God created man. And so, so God created man. So that's the first statement. And that if we if we think about it, that actually points to the first element of our identity. Uh, we would we would say perhaps the, the technical term uh, our creaturality, creaturality, creaturehood. We are creatures. That's the very first element we need to understand to understand who we are. We are creatures made by God. <laughs> Why is it the ultimate element? What is the first element? Because we share that with all of creation. <laughs> I mean, the dust of the, of, the, of the universe was made by God. <laughs> the dust of the desert was made by God. So this is one element, the one beginning element that we share with every created thing. So much so that the same verb is used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all that they contained. <clears throat> Likewise, God created man. So what does it mean now that I am a creature? I am first and foremost a creature. Well, to understand that meaning, I can only understand it if I relate myself to the Creator. We can only understand who we are if we understand our basic identity features and understand them in relationship to or in distinction from something else. So if I'm a creature, I am not the Creator. Who is the Creator? <laughs> well, He is eternal. I was made in time. He is infinite. I am finite. 
He is absolute in everything. I am relative in everything. He is eternally, absolutely independent, autonomous in every way. I am in every way dependent on Him. He is His own. Because all things are from Him, through Him, and for Him. I am not my own. I belong to the one who made me. Now you investigate that. You continue. You go through the theologies. All the attributes of God. You compare it to the attributes of men. And by, by distinguishing the two, you understand who you are. And if you don't begin from the first building block of creaturehood, you will never understand who you are. Secondly, uh, God created man in his own image. That's the second feature or characteristic of our identity. We are uh, made in the image of God. We are humans. We are human beings. What does that mean? Well, you need to understand that in relation to God. And also in relation to the rest of creation. There are things that distinguish us. We're not only distinguished from the Creator in, in every way that we said and many others, but we're also distinguished from the rest of creation. So like, we're not just animals. We're not God, but we're not animals. We're not you know, descendants of the monkeys. We are human beings created in the image of God. What does that mean? Well, the Bible, the whole Bible is there to teach us that. This is one of the most important subjects of all. The image of God, resembling the image of God. Of course, image, if you look at verse 26, 27, is the main word. But also that, that uh, auxiliary ver, uh, word there, likeness. Likeness, that's a helping term. We are in the image of God. We are to be the image of God in the sense we are to be like Him. We are to resemble Him. We are to reflect Him. <laughs> in, in what way? Well, first of all, in our faculties. In our faculties. Uh, there are analogies between us and God. The faculties He gave us are completely unique. <laughs> Some of them we share with angels. Most of them we share with angels, but they are unique because they are they make us persons. So we have the consciousness of of being ourself. We have the consciousness that others are. Personal consciousness <coughs> of being and of others being, but also we have the consciousness of God. Personal consciousness of the person of God, of the being, personal being of God. That's unique. That's unique. Then we have a moral conscience that underscores the moral values of God's morality. <laughs> and then we have an intellect, a very amazing instrument. <laughs> and then we have a volition. And then we have sentiments. God has sentiments. God is not a robot. God has infinite, perfect sentiments. <laughs> but he, he gave us all of these faculties in analogies, in analogy with His, 
so that we may relate personally to Him. So that I can hear Him, I can speak to Him. As He thinks of me, I can think of Him. As He relates to me, I can relate to Him and to others. And in all of that, we are completely unique. And we see that uniqueness as we look to God. Uh, and as we look around, we are distinguished. We are different from animals. Of course, language is another aspect of uniqueness in man. Uh, the third, uh, the third element, the third constituent element of our identity. Uh, we go back to verse twenty-seven. God created man in His image. In the image of God, He created man. That's an emphasis. It's important. But then He says, male and female, He created them. So, creaturality, humanity, sexuality. The three building blocks of our self-identity. So, what you have here is like a, a road map. <laughs> you understand who you are? You must do it in these terms. And again, you need to understand what it means to be a man or a woman in relation. In relation. Just like a creature is not the creator, and just like a human being is not an animal, so a man is not a woman, and a, a woman is not a man. There's a distinction there. And that distinction, the more solid it is, the better it is for you. The more you understand that you're a creature, just a creature, the better it is for you. The more you understand that you're not an animal, but a human being with wonderful abilities, the better it is for you. The more you understand that you're a man, not a woman, a woman, not a man, the better it is for you and for others around you, all to the glory of God. But the Bible will say from the very beginning, if you mess up here, you will never get a hold of who you are. There's a question of identity here. Identity. If there is a thing that is so clear in our society, is that there is a loss of identity. People no longer know who they are. It's become madness. Madness. There are hundreds of genders now. You can be whatever you wish to be. So here's the crux of the matter, if we go to chapter 3, what happens with sin? See, that's the crux of the matter. What is it that all of that can be so unsettled and disrupted and perverted and deviated? Um, chapter 3, Genesis. We don't have time to get into any depth, but verse 4 and 5 we'll read, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in that day you eat of that forbidden fruit, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now look at that. Look at that. What is he doing? Well, he's perverting the first building block of our identity. You're not a creature. You can get rid of God. You can be autonomous, independent. Have your own way. Be your own God. Determine for yourself. What is good and evil? That's not God's prerogative. It can be yours. That's suggesting, tempting, that we can 
change our identity. As to think of ourselves to be what we are not. We are not divine. We're not God. But that's the nature of sin. It destroys our identity by blowing on our pride to make us believe that we can be something other and usually something better, greater, more powerful than we are. That's not so. That's not so. But that's exactly the nature of sin. And in the same way, uh, let me just give you an illustration. <laughs> because men, many men are believed to be God. <laughs> There's a God syndrome in humanity, very evident. I believe this is very much true of all of us in some shape or form. We have these God-like tendencies when we somehow take an absolute posture and you know, and we are it, you know. And But let me give you an illustration for the most intelligent man that ever lived, speaking uh, of Stephen Hawking, the, the great atheist. In this recent do- documentary, uh, Stephen Hawking Universe, uh, the story of everything, uh, Stephen Hawking says, I am free free to explore the universe and tell the ultimate story, the story of everything that ever was, from the moment the cosmos began to the creation of our world and everything in it and beyond, to the far, far future and the end of the universe itself, a journey through all space and all time. That's a God syndrome, isn't it? That's very much so that and of course, we can, the Bibles are, pages are full of that. People that believe to be God. You know, all the kings and the emperors and the Nebuchadnezzars and the Caesars and the Herods. God, you know. Not so, not so. But then, uh, also, men can not only aspire to go higher, they aspire to go lower. They feel that they can be God and animals at the same time. Especially today, when from Darwin on, especially, you know, they've been teaching we come from animals, we're just animals, just a little bit more evolved than others. What's that? Well, that's crazy. That's crazy. How can you be God and animal at the same time? That's a little bit irrational. How can you even think that you can think rationally through things, that your very reason can make sense of reality, if you're just an animal evolved casually or by chance, it doesn't make any sense. So Darwinism destroyed rationalism. They you know, destroy each other. It doesn't make any sense at all. And yet men will do that. And again, that's an attempt to the second building block of our identity. We are human beings created in the image of God. We're not animals. If you take that away and look at yourself as an animal and think your children are nothing but animals, that will have an effect on you, your children, humanity, society, a destructive uh, effect on that. What about the third building block, sexuality? It operates exactly the same way. Just as sin will have you think 
to have this divine orientation towards the ultimate and the absolute and then turn things around and make you go low, low to act like an animal and to therefore pervert the second building block of our identity the same thing will happen with the third element of sexuality it will deviate that orientation and make you feel like you, you can be other than what you are, than what you were created to be. That can be done in many ways, of course, but that's the nature of sin, to deviate, to pervert, to destroy the way you, a correct way to understand yourself. And if you don't understand yourself, then you lose yourself. You're lost. You're lost. You cannot succeed in this life and especially in, in eternity. Now this analysis that the Bible does is completely unique. Of course, from chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis, we need to go to chapter 3. <laughs> we don't have time to do so now. But chapter 3 will tell us why we were created originally <coughs> in a certain fashion, with certain orientation and a certain understanding on ourself. I'm a creature, I'm a human being, meant to be uh, imaging God, and then I am a man, and, or I'm a woman. And with that, these three building blocks, that was our identity. Sin has come, and if you page through the Bible, you can see exactly how all of that was deviated, altered, perverted different levels through history, but the more we go on with history, the worse it gets. Until society falls and disintegrates. Then another society comes up and then it disintegrates. And that's the story of mankind. And then we've come, of course, to our, you know, our, our, our present day situation. And this is what we are. Um, I said at the very beginning that as the Bible is unique in the analysis it does of the situation, the Bible is theological. <laughs> it's theological. It analyzes everything theologically. It's not ideological, it's theological. And when you do that, and you ask God, give me light that I may be able to understand, then world, worlds of truth open up. And it helps you. Oh, this is the issue. Now I understand where that thought came from. Now I understand why when I was 14 years of age I did what I did. Now I understand why my father did this or my mother did that or my sister. Now I understand. And what's the final word? The final word is Christ. <laughs> it's Christ. <laughs> because the, if the Bible is unique in analyzing and enlightening the original issue, the root problem of the matter, it is also unique in its answer. <laughs> How can you be cured of, of the, this inward sin that so deviates and perverts our nature? And it does it in all of us in some way. All of us in some way. Uh, Indeed, <coughs> the answer is Christ. The, an the answer is the knowledge of who we were at the beginning, 
to get a hold of the ideal that the Bible portrays of what we ought to have been and we have not been. We have come short. We have failed. We are uh, sick to the root with, a, with an inward malady that cannot be cured except by the forgiveness of God in Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit. As we daily, daily open the scripture and read and pray, as I often say, with an open bosom, with an open chest. <laughs> Not hiding anything from God. From the beautiful things He does to praise Him for, to the ugly things we have inside. That's the only way to deal with us. That's the only way to deal with us. To be frank with ourselves. Not hiding things, but to bring Him in the light. Oh God, this is who I am. Be merciful to me. Be merciful to my wife. Be merciful to my children. Be merciful to my companions in church. Be merciful to sinners. Uh, through the cross of Christ, through the punishment that He bore on our, on our stead, He paid the price for all of our sin in that infinite anguish that He suffered on the cross, which we can never fathom. Which can never fathom. The Bible gives us glimpses of that garden, of that agony, that uh, inward death that he's, the Lord was sensing, uh, an agony unto death. He said, how can he say death concerning himself? Because he was being abandoned by God. So he felt like dying. He was dying. He was dying for us. And by, by suffering that infinite uh, agony of the abandonment of God, and then of course the ultimate death, he paid and extinguish our debt and extinguish our debt with an infinite holy God so that we can call him Heavenly Father if we believe in Christ and have a filial relationship with him so that I can be at peace not thinking of who I am but thinking of who he is and what he has done we can ever have peace with God ever justified by his grace uh, and then the Holy Spirit will work, will work within us to teach us, to mold us, to reorient ourselves. And let me say again, oh my, the importance of pastors, <coughs> pastors, especially pastors that will transmit a, a father attitude, a welcoming attitude, so that people can open themselves up and talk to them of private things that they will tell nobody. And I've heard so many <laughs> already of all sorts of things. I would say I've heard a lot of women that were molested. But also a number of men that have confessed a lot of difficulties in sexual areas um, through the years. This is a tough issue. But we have all the weapons, all the instruments to be able to to be cured, uh, cleaned, kept safe by God, never letting go of His hand as He never lets us go, and uh, striving, praying to remain faithful lifelong. Uh, God bless you. God bless you. And it has been wonderful to be with you all. 
I'm, I'm sad is uh, is ending, but uh, Lord willing, we'll be back. But pray for us as we go back to Italy. A ton of work is there waiting for us, and uh, we are uh, still just as excited as when we were 25 years old. <laughs> Amen.